Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia on TalkShoot. It is Friday, April 29th, 2011. Last week in, in Matthew, uh, well, well, covering this book of Matthew, I really hope to do more than one chapter a week, but there is so much here in these first three chapters. And, and there's a few other chapters that, that are going to take a, a, a one evening all by themselves, probably chapter 13, chapter 23. Chapter 24 might take a couple of weeks. I hope not to be here all year just with Matthew, but I, I feel that it has to be done thoroughly. Tonight we will probably only cover Matthew chapter 3. There's just a lot here. It doesn't seem like it, maybe. It, it's a short chapter. It really only talks about... um. John the Baptist and, and the baptism of Christ. But but there's a lot here to be discussed. Last week in Matthew chapter 2, we saw that the Magi, we saw the Magi and who they were as described by the classical historians, and that it is somewhat possible, even though I wouldn't make the assertion, that they may have been Levites of the dispersion. That makes total sense from a, from a biblical view, there's no doubt. And, and we saw the contrast between the people of Judea, those who anticipated the coming of Christ, and those who feared his coming, and their conspiracy against him. The great red Edomite dragon of Revelation chapter 12 the children of that old Genesis serpent. Herod and all those dwelling in Jerusalem were in terror. Tonight we will see again that the Bible proves that the Edomites are present in great numbers in Judea and in positions of authority in Jerusalem. Last week, we also saw some overlooked details of Scripture, such as why Christ had come out of Egypt, or, or why he had to come out of Egypt, and why he was called a Nazarene, because he was the prophetic branch of so many Old Testament prophecies. And the Hebrew word, Strong spells it Netzer, but it can be transliterated Nazar, and, and that Hebrew word, Strong's number 5342, that means branch. It's one of several Hebrew words which mean branch, but branch. But it is the word describing prophetically the Christ as the branch in Isaiah chapter 11 and a few of those other prophecies. One cannot understand much of what is going on in the New Testament. I'd say one probably can't understand any of what is going on in the New Testament. Well, without first understanding both the Old Testament and the history of Judea between the Testaments, something that a full understanding of Matthew chapter 3 requires is an understanding of the book of the prophet Malachi who was one of the prophets of the intertestamental period, him and Zechariah and a couple of others, to have an understanding of what had transpired in Judea in the period between the Testaments and what was prophesied by the Word of God concerning the events which were to take place after the deportations and up to and during the ministry of Christ, 
Only then can one properly interpret many of the important events of the gospel. We shall also see here, from Malachi and from the law, exactly why John was baptizing in the first place and what the significance of that baptism was. First, in the 6th century B.C., the Edomites had made a league with the Babylonians. They were Babylonian allies. And then they assisted the Babylonians in the, in the destruction of Jerusalem. Speaking of this very thing is Psalm 137, verse 7, which, which exclaims, Remember, O Yahweh, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. Likewise, from the Septuagint, from 1 Esdras, chapter 4, verse 45, we read, Thou also hast vowed to build up the temple which the Edomites burned when Judea was made desolate by the Chaldees. By those two scriptures, we know that the Edomites were chiefly responsible for the destruction of the temple of Solomon, being allies of the Babylonians in their invasion. The Babylonians, of course, being the Chaldees of 1 Esdras 4.45. After the deportations of the last of the tribe of Judah by the Babylonians, it is evident that those same Edomites moved into the land, which was vacated by the children of Israel. A century or so later, a century or so after the Babylonian deportation of the people of Jerusalem, Persian inscriptions place much of the what they called the province of Edomia, they placed much of it in the ancient land of Israel. And from that point on, what we know from the Old Testament as Judah, the, the southern part of Judah and the southern part of the land of Israel, the coastal regions, that was from that time, from in the Persian period, in the Greek Hellenistic period, and in the Roman period, it was known as the northern part of Edomia. So the Edomites moved north into the land of Judah and Israel. This is very verifiable in history. Ezekiel chapters 35 and 36 discuss the Edomite takeover of lands these lands formerly belonging to Israel and Judah. The prophet says, and I'll read from chapter 35, verses 7 through 12, Yahweh speaking through the prophet, Thus will I make Mount Seir most desolate, and cut off from it him that passes out and him that returns. And I will fill his mountains with slain men in thy hills and in thy valleys and in all thy rivers, Shall they fall that are slain with the sword? I will make thee perpetual desolations, and the city shall not return. And ye shall know that I am Yahweh, because thou hast said, These two nations, now, now Yahweh is saying that Edom has said, These two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess it, whereas 
Yahweh was there. That that can only be talking, those two countries, those two nations, can only be talking about Israel and Judah after the deportations. Verse 11, Therefore, as I live, saith Yahweh, I will do even according to thine anger and according to thine envy, which thou hast used out of thy hatred against them, meaning Israel, and I will make myself known among them, meaning Israel, when I have judged thee. And thou shalt know that I am Yahweh, and I have heard all thy blasphemies, which thou hast spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are laid desolate, they are given to us to consume. That The Edomites are saying that very thing today. This is a dual prophecy, I have no doubt. They are saying that very thing today about every nation where the children of Israel dwell. Today, most of the world's people people perceive the goings-on in Palestine as some sort of struggle of Israel for their ancient land. But the Jews are not Israel. They are Edom. They have returned to build the waste places, as we shall see in Malachi. And Yahweh will not be tricked. I'm going to read from Josephus. Antiquities, Book 13, which shows that the people of Judea had subsumed the people of the cities of Edom, which were in the, in, in the ancient land of Judah. Hyrcanus took also Dora and Marissa, cities of Edomia, and subdued all the Edomians and permitted them to stay in that country if they would submit to circumcision and make use of the laws of the Judeans. And they were so desirous of living in the country of their forefathers that they submitted to the right of circumcision and of the rest of the Judean ways of living, at which time, therefore, this befell them that they were hereafter considered to be Judeans. That's Flavius Josephus telling us that the Edomites became Judeans. That happened circa 120-125 B.C. 1 Maccabees chapter 2, verse 46 states, and, and this is before the, um, the, the subsumption of the, of the Edomites, well, when they first threw off the yoke of the Syrians, and the Syrians had prevented circumcision. 1 Maccabees 2.46 states, And whatever children soever they found within the coast of Israel uncircumcised, those they circumcised valiantly. From the first days of the Maccabees, they were circumcising children by geography and not by ethnicity. It can be shown in history and in scripture that many other peoples, non-Israelites, many of them Canaanites, lived within the coasts of Israel. So by the time of the Maccabees, what we have, um, that the leadership in, in Jerusalem just bringing anybody into, into Judaism. I have to call it Judaism by this time. It's no longer Hebrewism. 
It, it's no longer the religion of the ancient Israelites, which was ethnically exclusive. Malachi prophesied of John the Baptist, who's this John the Baptist is the central figure of Matthew chapter three. And Malachi also prophesied of a coming corrupt priesthood. Therefore, tonight, we will begin with the first four chapters, I'm sorry, with all four chapters of Malachi's prophecy. And in that manner, will we better understand Matthew chapter 3. John is dealing with the priests in Matthew 3, and Malachi's prophecy is aimed primarily at the priesthood in Judea. I'm going to read it from the King James Version, Malachi 1.1. The burden of the word of Yahweh to Israel, by Malachi. I have loved you, saith Yahweh, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith Yahweh, yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau. That's quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 9. And Paul in Romans 9 is explaining the same thing. That Jerusalem and Judea are split between Israelites and Edomites. Paul expresses care only for the Israelites, but he calls the Edomites vessels of destruction. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet saith Yahweh, yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom Yahweh has indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, Yahweh will be magnified from the border of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith Yahweh of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name, and ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? Let me say that it was the priests of Judea that took his name out of the scripture. Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, the table of Yahweh is contemptible, and if ye offer sacrifice the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if he offered the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Remember the Old Testament commanded sacrifices without blemish. Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person? Saith Yahweh of hosts. And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This has been by your means. Will he regard your persons, saith Yahweh of hosts? Who is there 
even among you, that would shut the doors for naught. Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith Yahweh of hosts, neither will I accept an offering at your hand. From the rising of the sun even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the nations. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, saith Yahweh of hosts. But you have profaned it, in that you say, the table of Yahweh is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. You said also, behold, what a weariness it is, and you have snuffed at it, saith Yahweh of hosts, and you brought that which was torn and the lame and the sick, thus she brought an offering, should I accept this of your hand, saith Yahweh. But cursed be the deceiver, which has in his flock a male, and vows and sacrifices unto Yahweh a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith Yahweh of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen, or the nations, I'm sorry. Malachi 2.1 And now, O you priests, this commandment is for you. If ye will not hear, and if ye will not lay it to heart, to give glory unto my name, saith Yahweh of hosts, I will send, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yeah, I have cursed them already, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces. That describes bastardization. That describes Race mixing. Even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it. And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith Yahweh of hosts. Why would he assert that his covenant is with Levi? Why would he be talking to the priests? Addressing the priests at Jerusalem, while he's comparing Jacob and Esau. The corrupt seed is the mixing of the Israelites with the Edomites that we see in history, that we read in the pages of Josephus. Yahweh says, my covenant might be with Levi, not with Esau. The priests have mixed their race. They've cheated God. He says he caused it. I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces. It's a punishment for disobedience. But this is what's going on when we get to the New Testament and we see that the priests are not worthy. Behold, I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it, 
And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith Yahweh of hosts. There are priests in Jerusalem whose sacrifices are not acceptable because they are not Levi. It's that simple. My covenant was with him of life before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth. For he is the messenger of Yahweh of hosts. But you, addressing the priests at Jerusalem, but you have departed out of the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith Yahweh of hosts. Therefore, have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as you have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Now the people respond. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? This is the same thing that the Pharisees at the time of Christ had asserted that they were not the children of fornication. But indeed, being the children of Esau, they were. They just didn't understand that fornication was race-mixing. Like today, they want the state to sanction marriage. They want the religious institutions to sanction marriage. Yahweh sanctions marriage. Only Yahweh sanctions marriage. And Yahweh's marriage can only be with kind after kind. So no, one God hasn't created us. Not in that sense. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange God, the daughter of a strange God. Daniel, in the book of Susanna, I don't have it handy. Daniel, in the book of Susanna, accuses certain of the priests of being the seed of Canaan and not of Judah. And that was even before the Edomites. That was before the Edomites had been folded into the polity of Jerusalem and Judah under the Maccabees. That was 400 years before that. And it's apparent that Judah... Because he had children from the Canaanite Shoah, it's apparent to me that some of them had already infiltrated the priesthood at Jerusalem. That's what Malachi is telling us. He's attributing this to Judah's marrying the daughter of a strange god. So we already see that some of the priests were corrupted with the seed of Canaan. That's what's going on here. And, of course, if Judah married the daughter of a strange god, 
then one God has not created us because some of us are bastards. Yahweh created all things which he created, but he did not create a bastard. Malachi 2, verse 12. Yahweh will cut off the man that does this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob. And him that offers an offering unto Yahweh of hosts. And this ye have done again, covering the altar of Yahweh with tears, with weeping and with crying out, insomuch that he regards not the offering any more, or receives it with good will at your hand. Remember, Yahweh would not accept the sacrifice of Cain either. Yet ye say, Wherefore, because Yahweh has been witness with thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant, and did not he make one, yet had the residue yet he had the residue of the spirit, and why one that he might seek a godly seed, therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For Yahweh, the God of Israel, he that hates putting away, Yahweh is saying here that he hates, he hates it when a man divorces his wife. That's what he's saying here. And that's what putting away means. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith Yahweh of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. Ye have wearied Yahweh with your words. Yet you say, wherein have we wearied him? When you say, everyone that does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh, and he delights in them, where is the God of judgment? And that's what the churches do today. Everyone that does good, and everyone that does evil is considered good today. The homosexuals, the race mixers. So we see that the first two chapters of Malachi talk about priests. Compare Jacob and Esau. Yahweh avows that he hates Esau. Yahweh points out the Canaanite element in Judah, because Judah married the daughter of a strange god. And Yahweh asserts that his covenant is with Levi. So what we see in Malachi is a prophecy of a race-mixed priesthood. And that was certainly the circumstances. Well, it's probably the circumstances today, I'm sure. That, that was certainly the circumstances at the coming of Christ. Some of the priests were Levites, and a whole lot of the priests were Edomites and Canaanites. That is why he assures us that his covenant is with Levi, and that he won't accept the sacrifices from those other priests, ever. Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. This is a prophecy of John the Baptist. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And Yahweh, whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. Jesus Christ was Yahweh. 
even the messenger of the covenant, that's Christ again, whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith Yahweh of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto Yahweh an offering in righteousness. That's important. He shall purify the sons of Levi. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto Yahweh, as in the days of old and as in former years. Well, here, Christ himself is the offering, and we will discuss that. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith Yahweh of hosts. These things Christ accused the Pharisees and Sadducees of doing again and again. For I am Yahweh, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Yahweh promised us life, even though we all deserved death. Even from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith Yahweh of hosts. Returning to God is not returning to Jerusalem or to a brick-and-mortar temple, but rather it is returning to his law and his ways. But ye said, Wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there they may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith Yahweh of hosts. If I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her before the time in the field, saith Yahweh of hosts. And all the nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, saith Yahweh of hosts. These are the same promises of obedience to God for Israel that we see in Deuteronomy, I believe it's chapter 28. Your words have been stout against me, saith Yahweh, yet ye say, why have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said, it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, and that we have walked mournfully before Yahweh of hosts? The same thing scoffers say today. And now we call the proud happy. Yeah, they that work wickedness are set up. Yeah, they that tempt God are even delivered. Then they that feared Yahweh spake often to one another, and Yahweh hearkened and heard it. And the book of remembrance was written before him 
for them that feared Yahweh and that thought upon his name. The priests in Jerusalem, they took away his name. They still do today. And they shall be mine, saith Yahweh of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son that serves him. Then you shall return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serves God and him that serves him not. This last part, chapter 4 of Malachi, is, I believe, an end-time prophecy. It perfectly parallels the short prophecy of Obadiah. Malachi 4, verse 1, For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yeah, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day cometh that cometh shall burn them up, saith Yahweh of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. The lake of fire is not a refining fire, it is a destroying fire. But unto you that fears my name shall the Son of Righteousness arrive with healing in his wings. That picture that Yahweh just drew in Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 is a picture of the ancient symbol of the phoenix, the winged sun disk. And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith Yahweh of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statues, statutes and judgments. Not statues, I'm sorry. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So this is a dual prophecy. It has to do with John the Baptist, the messenger sent before the face of Yahshua Christ, who shall purify the sons of Levi. That's important. That's the baptism of John and that is its stated purpose. John is sent to sort out the Edomites from the real Levites. The Levites in Jerusalem accepted his baptism. The Edomites questioned his baptism. And he excoriated, he upbraided them for it. Concerning the last verse of Malachi chapter 4, I believe that spirit of Elijah, as Clifton also does, that has to be the Israel identity message, because only in Israel identity, out of all the Christian sects, do we turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and hopefully the hearts of fathers to the hope in their children, because it's all about race. So the entire prophecy of Malachi is about the comparison between the, the accepted priests whose Yahweh covenant is with 
the true sons of Levi, and the rejected priests, who, like Cain, their sacrifices can never be accepted, the children of Esau. And Yahweh loved Jacob, and he hated Esau. In the Old Testament, the washing of the body is seen of the priests before they enter into the temple to do service and to make sacrifice. I'm going to quote from Leviticus chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. And Moses did as Yahweh commanded him. And the assembly was gathered together unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Moses said unto the congregation, This is the thing which Yahweh commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Now from Numbers chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. And the Levites were purified, and they washed their clothes. And Aaron offered them as an offering before Yahweh, and Aaron made an atonement for them to cleanse them. And after that went the Levites in to do their service in the tabernacle of the congregation before Adam, Aaron, I'm sorry, before Aaron and before his sons, as Yahweh had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so did they unto them. All of Numbers chapter 8 describes the cleansing of the Levites. Aside from these passages concerning the priests, or certain occasions where people are instructed in what to do upon exposure to disease or exposure to corpses or certain other circumstances, there is no other ritual cleansing of the Bible required in the Old Testament. Remember the words of Yahweh in Malachi chapter 3. And he shall purify, and he shall purify the sons of Levi. John the Baptist was also a Levite. So he could fulfill the priestly role of cleansing, which Moses the Levite had done first, long before him. It is apparent that Yahshua Christ, coming to be the final ritual sacrifice for the children of Israel, the prophecy and baptism of John for the sons of Levi was also symbolic of the Old Testament law. That is why John was sent to baptize the sons of Levi so that Christ could be properly sacrificed. Now, Israel, the children of Israel, had been cleansed of all their sins by Christ himself, as foretold by the prophets. They have no need of any further cleansing 
and there is no need of any further baptism. The book of Acts, we have to understand, and, and Clifton likes to point this out, he's pointed out pointed it out several times in his writing. The book of Acts is a book of transition. The apostles themselves needed to change from their Old Testament ritual-based mindset view of salvation to to the New Testament faith-based mindset and and understanding of salvation. And, And that the, the children of Israel of the dispersion were just as worthy as the children of Israel who kept the circumcision and the law. And, and we see these things, we see this transition occurring in Acts chapter 10 with Peter's vision, and we see this transition occurring again in, in Acts chapter 15 with, with the, um, the dispute between Paul and Barnabas. And, and certain of the Judaizers who were trying to de- demand that converts be circumcised. So at the beginning of the book of Acts, the apostles were baptizing in water. But that wasn't so at the end of the, the book of Acts. At the end of the book of Acts, the apostles realized as Paul professes in in, um, in Ephesians chapter 5 and Peter, in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, that it's the sacrifice in the gospel and the word of Christ that cleanses the children of Israel. That's what the gospel is. The gospel message is the message, primarily, that Yahweh came to redeem his people and cleanse them and cleanse them of all their sins. So we have no further need of ritual water baptizing. The John baptized to cleanse the sons of Levi to fulfill the law so that Christ could be sacrificed properly, according to the law. That doesn't make the sons of Levi responsible for the sacrifice of the Christ. The the gospel makes it clear that the Edomites are responsible for the murder of God. But the Levites were present. Many Levites were probably going in the crowd, following along with the Edomites, I'm certain. But they were present and they were cleansed. At least some of them were. And that fulfilled the law. Baptism was also a pagan ritual. I would assert that in the Christian era, the pagan idea has been brought into Christianity. In Christianity, in the Old Testament law, the priests were cleansed before the sacrifice. That's what Numbers 8 is all about. 
The priests were cleansed, and then they were worthy to enter into the temple and make the sacrifice. John the Baptist fulfilled that in the New Testament with Christ. We have taken the power to cleanse our sins. The power to cleanse our sins doesn't belong to the priest. The priest cleansed himself, and he went into the temple and made an atoning sacrifice for the people. That's the Old Testament. We have taken the power of the sacrifice to cleanse our sins, and we have transferred that power to the priest. That transfer is wrong. The priest merely conducted the priest merely conducted the ritual. We are all cleansed. through Yahshua's sacrifice, not through the rituals of the priests. The priest doesn't cleanse you. You don't submit to the baptism of a pastor in water. The priest in the Old Testament cleansed himself so that he could offer the sacrifice with a pure body. You're not the sacrifice. You don't need to be cleansed. Yahweh has cleansed you through his sacrifice. So we've transferred the power of the sacrifice to the power and into the hands of the priest, and that transfer was wrong. That's paganism. There are many ancient documents revealing baptism to be a pagan ritual. Here I'm going to show that baptism was employed by our pagan ancestors in four of our own ancient cultures, the Egyptian, the Assyrian, the Greek, and the Germanic. From ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, Princeton University Press, James Pritchard, Editor, published in 1969. Page 437, from an Akkadian inscription entitled, I will praise the Lord of Wisdom. And no, by Lord, they didn't mean Yahweh. They meant Marduk. Which dates before 700 B.C. There is an exclamation that reads thus, Quote, in the gate of the purifying waters, I was sprinkled with purifying waters. The inscription describes a ritual. The exclamation is accompanied by others describing sacrifices and libations and incense offerings in supplication to the Akkadian gods, or idols, I should say. Page 495. From an Egyptian papyrus believed to date to the 12th century, to the 12th dynasty, I'm sorry, the time of Abraham, that was the 12th dynasty, 
from a list of good and bad activities, quote, plunging into the river is good. It means cleansing from all evils. So we see the idea of being cleansed from evil, being plunged into a river, and that too is in a list of religious activities. More concise than that, from the Poetic Edda, or uh, I'm sorry, more precise than that, from, from the Poetic Edda, translated by Lee M. Hollander of the University of Texas Press, from page 121, which is the Rigspula, I'm probably um, destroying the pronunciation of that, the Lay of Rig, stanza 7, quote, gave Edda birth to a boy child then, in clouts she swathed, the swarthy-skinned one, thrall they called him, and cast on him water. Dark was his hair and dull his eyes. Right there we see that a, a boy child is given a name as he has water cast on him. That is the ancient pagan christening ritual. And we do the same thing with boats today, right? I mean, we break a bottle over the bow and... and um, and name the boat, right? That's what a christening ritual is. It's Germanic, but it's pagan. Here we have it in the Poetic Edda, which dates to pre-Christianized Germany, Germanic peoples. Actually, this is that this this Edda, as we know it, dates from 10th century Iceland, but it's much older than that. From the sayings of Har also called Havamal, at stanza 158, we seem to have the baptism rite connected to the idea of eternal life. From the Poetic Edda, same translation, page 39, quote, That thirteenth I know, if a sane son, I shall wet with holy water, never will he fall, though the fray be hot, nor sink down wounded by the sword. So we see that the holy water immersion, holy water baptism idea is certainly a pagan one. More striking than that, more striking than any of these, is from an ancient play called Eumenides by the 5th century B.C. Greek poet Aeschylus. In this play, the character Orestes says at lines 448 to 452, quote, It is the law that he who is defiled by shedding blood shall be debarred all speech until the blood of a suckling victim shall have besprinkled him by the ministrations of one empowered to purify from murder. Long since at other houses have I, Orestes was a murderer, and he was wanted, Long since at other houses have I been thus purified by both victims, meaning sacrificial victims, and flowing streams, meaning the water of baptism. So we see in four ancient Aryan cultures, and Egyptians and Akkadians were certainly Aryan, that baptism was a purifying ritual that removed sin or that made one invincible, or, as the Roman Catholics really practice it, 
It's just a name fastening ceremony, as it's called, or christening, as we would call it. But it's not Christian at all. It's a pagan ritual. Now, we've taken, as I said, it's the sacrifice of Christ. And the sacrifice of lambs before Christ represented that. It's the sacrifice of Christ which cleansed us from our sin. The priest only cleansed himself and washed the sacrifice, as I shall quote in a, in a little bit. But the priest didn't wash the person on whose behalf the sacrifice was made, not in the Hebrew Old Testament. The priest washed himself so that he could be worthy to make the sacrifice. And the sacrifice victim, the lamb or the bird or whatever it was, and there, there, this can be quoted in the Old Testament, that was also washed. The sacrifice removed the sin of the person on whose behalf the sacrifice was made. Yahshua Christ was our sacrifice. He removed our sins. John the Baptist was sent before him to cleanse the sons of Levi so that the law would be fulfilled. There's no need for baptism now. Christ has cleansed all Israelites. At Luke, chapter 12, verse 50, Christ exclaims, Now I have a a baptism to be baptized in. And how am I constrained until when it should be completed? He could not have been talking about the baptism of John, which had already transpired long before. Rather, he was talking about the baptism of his death. At Mark chapter 10, verses 38 and 40, we see this discourse between Christ and the apostles. Quote, so Yahshua said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup which I shall drink or to be baptized in the baptism which I am baptized? He wasn't talking about the baptism of John. He was talking about the baptism which he still had to be baptized in, which he explains at Luke 12, verse 50. Then they said to him, we are able... So Yahshua said to them, the cup which I drink, you shall drink, and the baptism in which I am baptized, you shall be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or left is not mine to give, but for those whom it has been prepared for. Paul clarifies this at Romans 6, verse 3, where Paul asks, Are you ignorant that as long as we are baptized in Christ Yahshua, into his death we are baptized. That's the baptism Christ had to be baptized in at Luke 12.50, the baptism in his death that Paul explains in Romans 6, verse 3. At Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul states that we have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. That baptism is in the death of Christ. In his word, and in what he did for the children of Israel. Only the children of Israel are baptized and cleansed of all their sins in his death. 
It is the gospel that cleanses, and therefore do not let any man pretend to baptize you in water. It took the apostles some time to understand this, but in the end they did. Therefore, Luke records this statement of Christ at, its, at the beginning of the book of Acts. In Acts 1-4, Luke says, John baptized in water, but you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. But seeing many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to the immersion, he said to them, Race of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? I'm sorry, I never read John chapter, <laughs> chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So in light of what we've just heard about baptism, I will do that first. Now in those days, John the Baptist arised proclaiming in the desert of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens has neared. For this is that spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, A voice crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the prince, make straight his paths. Matthew identified the coming of John with that prophecy in Isaiah. And John himself had his garment from hairs of camel and a leather belt around his loins, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, and they were immersed in the river Jordan by him, acknowledging their errors. Let me say that there were probably many more people than the sons of Levi baptized by John. But the prophecy says that John was to cleanse the sons of Levi. He could cleanse more than just the Levites. They could have been Judahites and Benjaminites and, and many other people, even possibly some Edomites, caught up in the baptism of John. It doesn't matter. John was sent to cleanse the sons of Levi, and I'm sure that that prophecy was fulfilled. If others are baptized by John who aren't of the tribe of Levi, what does that matter? Accepting the message of repentance from sin would be good for all of us, wouldn't it? Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. But seeing many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to the immersion, to the baptism, he said to them, race of vipers. We saw that word, genos, means race, not generation. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Indeed, you should make fruit worthy of repentance. And do not think to say among yourselves, we have Abraham for a father. For I say to you that Yahweh is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. But already the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Surely any tree not producing good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. The word genos means race. It does not mean generation. There are instances where it can mean all of the people of a given race living at one time, and that to us would mean generation in English, but yet the Greek word genos does not lose its racial connotation even in that statement. We saw in the very first verse of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, that Genesis, Genesis, I'm sorry, Genesis, Genesios actually in the, in the genitive case there, but Genesis, which is the word that we get Genesis from, it can mean a beginning, but it also means a race. And in the context of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Genesis certainly means a race. Do not think to say among yourselves, we have Abraham for a father. Yahweh could indeed raise up children to Abraham from stones. And the Catholics love to point this out. And the Universalists love to point this out. But John didn't say anything about the covenant. The covenant is with Israel. The covenant is only with the children of Israel. Abraham had many descendants through Keturah, through Ishmael, through Esau. None of those were none of those were Israel. Yes, Yahweh could indeed raise up children to Abraham from stones, but that would not make them heirs of the covenant. That would not make them the seed of Jacob. Likewise, the Edomites among the Pharisees and Sadducees, they claimed to be the seed of Abraham, and they were. As Paul explains in Romans chapter 9, and as we see it unfold in John chapter 8, where the, where, where the priests say that we were children, we're, we're children of Abraham and we've never been in bondage. An Israelite could never say that. The Israelites were in bondage in Egypt. They were in bondage in Assyria. They were in bondage in Babylon. And Edomite might try to get away with saying that. Now, I know people can point out that the Edomites were at one time in bondage under David the king. And that is true. It's in the Old Testament. But Christ proved to the Pharisees again and again that they really didn't know the Old Testament. They proclaimed that they'd never been in bondage. That can only be describing the children of Esau, it certainly can't be describing the children of Israel. The book of Malachi, as I've just read it, and Paul in Romans 9 also prove that many of these priests were indeed of the children of Esau. And that is why John calls them a race of vipers. In Luke chapter 11, Yahshua Christ, talking to the same Pharisees and Sadducees, calls them a race of vipers and informs them that their race is responsible 
for all the blood of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. Yahweh is not a false accuser. Yahweh is not an unjust judge. The, the testimony of Scripture makes it absolutely clear, and even John the Apostle says it was Cain who slew his brother. Only Cain can be responsible for the blood of Abel. Therefore, these Pharisees and Sadducees had to be of the race of Cain. We see that the Edomites were indeed descended through Esau's union with Canaanite wives. The Canaanite wives had descended from Canaan, and Canaan himself had mingled his seed together with the Rephaim and the Kenites and many other strange peoples. Genesis chapter 15, verses 19 through 21. Yahweh could raise up children to Abraham from stones, but it would not make them heirs. It would not make them the seed of Jacob. John is not saying that children of stones could inherit the kingdom of God, as the Catholics like to point this for, to this verse and, and promote universalism. This verse does not promote universalism at all. John is telling the Pharisees and Sadducees, that Yahweh could raise up children from stones, and the stones wouldn't be heirs of the kingdom, neither are these Pharisees and Sadducees. That is what John is telling them. Esau lost his inheritance for good. Hebrews 12, verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Why did Esau find no place of repentance? Because Esau couldn't have the inheritance. He couldn't have the inheritance because he had no legitimate children. All of Esau's children were race-mixed. He could not repent. He could not regain the birthright. He could not regain the birthright because he had nobody to pass it to. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to this baptism. They didn't necessarily come to be baptized. Just like they treated the Christ later, they wanted to know what authority he had to do the things he did. They were coming to see what it was that John was doing. Here, John challenged the Pharisees and the Sadducees to do good. When we read Genesis 4, verse 7, Yahweh challenges Cain to do good. If thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted. Although Yahweh certainly knew that Cain could never do any good. Here we see the same thing. John is challenging these Pharisees and Sadducees to do good. 
And then he says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. It's very clear from the Old Testament that salvation is race-based. The only race with the favor of Yahweh are the children of Israel. Period. But the children of Edom and all the other non-Israelite bastards, their fate has already been decided. And of each of them, it is the entire tree which shall be cut down. Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be rooted up. Therefore, John says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. This is not merely a pruning of the branches. It's an elimination of the entire tree. If your family tree is not found written into the book of life from the foundation of society, if you were not one of the creation of Adam, then you have no part in the kingdom of heaven. It's that simple. John's telling us the axe is laid to the root of the trees. We're not pruning branches. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. Indeed, I immerse you in water for repentance, the words of John. But he coming after me is more powerful than me, of whom I am not worthy to carry the sandals. He shall immerse you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. The baptism of Christ is not in water of whom the winnowing fan is in his hand, and he shall purge his threshing floor, and he shall gather his grain into the storehouse, but the chaff he shall burn with unquenchable fire. This last statement is parallel to the parable of the wheat and the tares found in Matthew chapter 13. The phrase, the winnowing fan is in his hand, means that judgment belongs to Christ. However, that was not the purpose of his first advent. It's the purpose of his second. The winnowing fan is a device which separated the wheat from the chaff, the grain from the chaff. The, the fan, it, it's a shovel that picks up the grain and tosses it into the air and the wind takes the fan, takes the chaff away, and the grain falls to the threshing room floor. Verse 13. Then Yahshua arrived from Galilee by the Jordan to John for which to be baptized by him. But John prevented him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and you should come to me. The word baptism also meaning, it, it means literally immersion, and I translated immerse or immersed, depending on the tense. In, in the Christogenian New Testament, I'm reading it as baptism here, so as not to cause confusion. Then responding, Yahshua said to him, allow it for now, for thusly it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him or permitted him to be baptized. The sacrifice, as well as the, as well as the priest, was cleansed beforehand. 
If Yahshua Christ was to be sacrificed properly, we need clean priests and a clean sacrifice. I'm going to read from the King James Version, Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. And Yahweh called unto Moses and spake, and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, If any man of you bring an offering unto Yahweh, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let it let him offer a male without blemish. Remember, the priests in Malachi were offering blemished cattle. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before Yahweh. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And he shall kill the bullock before Yahweh and the priests. Aaron's sons shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into his pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire upon the altar and lay the wood in order upon the fire. And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order upon the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar, but his inwards and legs shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn it all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto Yahweh. And if his offering be of the flocks, namely of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the side of the altar northward before Yahweh and the priests. Aaron's son shall sprinkle his blood, shall sprinkle his blood round about upon the altar, and he shall cut it into his pieces with his head and his fat, and the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar. But he shall wash the inwards and the legs with water, and a priest shall bring it all and burn it upon the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto Yahweh. Now let me say that the fire of Christ's sacrifice was the three and a half years that he spent preaching in Jerusalem. That's my that that is my interpretation of this as an allegory. But Christ's sacrifice fulfilled the law in every aspect because John the Baptist was a Levite. He cleaned, he cleansed the sons of Levites, and he cleansed the sacrificial victim before it was placed onto the fire, which was the trial of his mission in Judea, ending with his being slain. Verse 16. And being immersed, or baptized, Yahshua went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens opened, and he saw the Spirit of Yahweh descending as a dove and coming upon him. This is symbolic. And behold, a voice from out of heaven saying, He is my beloved Son, 
in whom I am satisfied. The declaration refers to Psalm 2, verse 7. I will declare the decree. Yahweh has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. And also to Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the nations. Now, many people want to say, oh, they're two different people, Yahweh and Yahshua. And that's simply not true, just because we hear the voice of Yahweh in heaven as Yahshua Christ stands in the water being baptized by John. Yahweh and Yahshua are still one and the same. The voice was for the benefit of the people and not for Yahshua. Yahweh is omnipresent and omnipotent. He is God. Yahshua is the fullness of the divinity bodily, as Paul puts it in Colossians. Yahshua, the body of a man, cannot be the sum total of everything that is God, because everything that is God cannot possibly fit into the body of a man. We have to imagine that our God has no such limits, that he could be in many places at once. He was the man standing in the Jordan. And he was the voice coming from heaven. Thank you for listening. I will end here and be back next week with Matthew chapter 4, Yahweh willing. Good night.